0: This episode of Tales from Ostlantis is brought to you by Ostlantis Premium. Don't you just hate having your favorite podcast interrupted by ads like this? Well, dear listener, you're in luck. Because starting at just 3 bucks a month, you can support independent Chicano media and receive ad-free episodes, premium episodes, bonus content, and access to our Discord server. Just visit com and click go premium or follow the link in the show notes and now on with the show
1: you must excuse me i've grown quite where i
0: this hasn't been easy
1: i know but you've learned a lesson a lesson in honesty honesty to yourself and honesty to others that lesson will stand you in good stead all your life I think we've all learned a good lesson. I've always heard that honesty is the best policy. Now I'm
0: catching on to why that's so, and why that's so, and why that's so, and why, that's so, and why, that's so and why that's so. What's going on, everybody? It's Curly Tlapoyawa, and I just wanted to give a brief introduction to this short interview I conducted with Dr. David S. Anderson while I was attending the SAAs, the Society for American Archaeology National Conference. And uh, it was held in Portland, Oregon back in March. And I was honored to be invited to participate on a panel with several other very distinguished archaeologists, such as John Hopes, uh, Flint Dibble, David S. Anderson, Kenneth Fetter, Nicholas Grabble, Chelsea Rose, Marika Stoll, Anna Goldfield of The Dirt Podcast, William Farley, and Daniel Falu. The name of our talk was Faking It and Making It Engaging with Pop Culture Threats to Archaeology. And the abstract for our talk is as follows. With the popularity of TV series such as Ancient Aliens and Ancient Apocalypse and websites and discussion groups such as Ancient Origins, pseudoarchaeology has an ongoing influence on the world. Whether directly or indirectly, it affects our reputations, employment, salaries, teaching, research, and public engagement. Its effects have intensified with general anti-science and conspiracy theory rhetoric, dangerously reinforcing racism, nationalist extremism, and white supremacy. Pseudoarchaeology proliferates in blogs, social media, podcasts, online videos, and documentary films. But these are also significant public forums – Ongoing interaction through classroom teachings and academic publications and outreach in the context of non-academic employment are not enough. While archaeologists are well-positioned to address popular misconceptions, it is essential to understand how to weather the hassles, risks, and dangers of malicious actors. This forum brings together a range of experienced archaeologists from a variety of backgrounds to discuss hazards, resources, and strategies for effective engagement with the public. So the day after we uh had this forum which turned out to be an excellent forum. I was very uh, excited to participate in it. We had a great turnout and people were talking about it all throughout the uh, the conference which felt really good. I was able to sit down with Dr. David S. Anderson uh for a short conversation about the forum itself and where he thinks we need to go looking forward as archaeologists when confronting Pseudo-archaeology. So with that said, enjoy. All right, I'm sitting here at the 88th SAA's in Portland, Oregon, the Oregon Convention Center, a nationwide or worldwide gathering, really, of archaeologists from different fields. So I'm, I'm here with David S. Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a professor who teaches anthropological science? And uh, we had a, uh, a panel. I had the pleasure of sitting on a panel with him uh, yesterday about pseudoarchaeology and the threats posed by pseudoarchaeology, especially as it relates to pop culture. So, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Curly. It is fantastic to actually get to see you face-to-face and join you on that panel yesterday. It was really good to see people coming together and talking about what, because I've been talking about this stuff for a long time, but it's great to see people taking it seriously across such a wide diversity of people at this point, a broad spectrum.
0: Yeah. um, So you teach anthropological sciences. What does that uh, entail exactly? Is it a lot of uh, soil analysis or what are we doing there?
1: We are an anthropological sciences program, which basically means, in the classic sense, uh, we used to have an anthropology program and we had a divorce. Uh, And the (laughs) cultural anthropologists and the archaeology and biological anthropology folks didn't get along. This was like 20 years ago, long before I was at the institution. Uh, And so the archaeologists and biological anthropologists split off and we got our own program. Uh, but right now, uh, the generations have passed on, and we are, as much as we can, can, we are trying to reunite our program and bring some culture anthropology back in. Because we need to
0: understand the people that we're studying, and not just their stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, on the panel yesterday, uh, you, you spoke about, you know, I guess one of the questions that was posed to you was about tenure, right? Yes. And um, how important it is that... Uh, Education regarding pseudo-archaeology, should that be considered as as part of tenure? Can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, traditionally in the academic world, public outreach has not been rewarded, uh, particularly if we compare public speaking or writing for a public audience, usually is undervalued in comparison to writing for academic journals or peer-reviewed sources. And uh, I think that we need a revision. I've I have some very friendly and supportive faculty at my institution, but uh, we should be seeing this, you know, in essence, public outreach is one of the most important things that we can be doing. Uh, And if it's ignored or undervalued by our academic institutions, then people cannot do as much of it. And this is a real part of why we have lost so much ground to pseudo-archaeological folks in the last 50 years. There's some very real examples where archaeologists have spent more time talking to one another and not enough time talking to the public. And as a result, the public doesn't know what we do anymore.
0: Yeah, when, we, uh, when we're so inward-facing, right? And we're just publishing books and journals. I mean, or papers and journals and books through academic presses and not really engaging with the public. It, it just leaves this void in, in the general public. And that void is like, you know, filled <laughs> by uh, bullshit, basically, you know.
1: Which reminds me, I think I need a copy of a book you wrote.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The the four disagreements, Doctor uh, Ruben Ariano Tlacatecat and I wrote this little book. It's a collection of uh, logical fallacies and uh, a guide to critical thinking for uh, you know for anybody who's interested in uh, in science. So when you uh, when you teach your classes. Do you have classes that focus primarily on pseudo-archaeology or do you mix it in with uh, you know, the class that you're currently teaching?
1: I mix it into all of my classes pretty much at this point because I think it is a fundamental cornerstone that we need to talk about and make sure students are aware of. And so, you know, I do a, a unit on Atlantis in my 101 class, which is our sort of our human origins class. Uh, but I am uh, lucky to have two courses that are, in essence, entirely dedicated to these subjects, at least in a broad capacity. Uh, for years now, I have been teaching a paranormal studies class. Uh, that is, pseudo-archaeology does not exist in a vacuum, and so as part of you know, as I was trying to better understand all the various pseudo-archaeological issues out there, I find my found myself reading you know things by Edgar Casey, the American psychic, uh, and all kinds of religious stuff from the Theosophical Society and whatnot. And so uh, this turned into for me uh, a broad paranormal studies class that is called. Uh, I regret this title sometimes, but the name of the class is Bigfoot Stole My UFO.
0: <laughs> well, it's catchy, right? It's yeah. going to it's it's sitting there in the catalog. You only have so much uh space to grab somebody's attention, so you need a catchy headline. I think more classes should have catchy headlines.
1: Yeah, uh, students respond well to the headline and that's the that's the important thing. And so that's been a great class. It sort of takes I, I do my best in that class to set aside whether any of the things we're talking about are real or not. We, we talk about it, and I talk about, you know, I let everybody know my biases in the class, but, you know, sort of the baseline of the class is Bigfoot UFOs, real or not. You know, the U.S. government spends millions of dollars on UFOs. Uh, people stand in line waiting to go to Bigfoot conventions. Like These are things, from an anthropological perspective, we need to talk about and understand the environment that lets them thrive.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it's funny because... Often, you know, for the longest time I considered the Bigfoot stuff to probably be the most innocuous mm-hmm. of the, uh, the bizarre beliefs. Like, well, I mean, if you're out there and you're hunting Bigfoot, at least you're like outdoors and you're, <laughs> you're with your friends and you're camping and you're probably having fun. Right. But then I start, uh, you know, like everything's got a dark side, uh, I'd I'd read about some guy who was obsessed with Bigfoot and he wound up like killing somebody or, you know, so there's always that that dark side. Like it's, you know, when people ask me, well, what's the harm, you know, and and I'm like, well, there's there's always harm in in bullshit. It's going to hurt somebody. Absolutely. I will never quite forget
1: reading the news story. Uh, back uh, when the Maya 2012 calendar debacle was playing out where a young girl committed suicide. She was so worried about what might happen when, when we knew there was nothing that was going to happen.
0: Yeah. but Well, and then the, uh, the this idea that uh, the calendar was ending, right? So it, it portrayed this complete misunderstanding or lack of understanding how Mesoamerican calendars even work. Yes. And it just took advantage of the people's, the general public's, ignorance on that subject and i don't mean ignorance is like an insult they just they didn't know anything about how this calendar worked and that everything's cyclical and it's just you know the the time shifts and goes into a new era it doesn't mean that there's the end of the world or you know that's not part of any legitimate maya belief system that tied it to 2012 being some sort of uh, apocalyptic event and you know I, even I got pushback when I would talk to people about it, like, you know, you know, this is bullshit, right? And they're like, yeah, but it's fun. You know, it, it's fun to, to believe in this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, it might be fun, but it's inherently dangerous. And it's it's uh, harmful to actual Maya communities yeah. who are, are living this day-to-day life, you know, in their communities, maintaining their culture, just trying to survive day to day, and then here you have a bunch of assholes taking like trips to Chichen Itza and 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 acting like jackasses and climbing the the Temple of Kukulkan when they're not supposed to, and just being super disrespectful. Even if they think that they're being respectful, they're being incredibly disrespectful of indigenous cultures. So that's been something that's always uh, sort of guided my uh, the the fire you know, under my ass to, to get me out there and, and always question stuff. And you brought up something interesting in a conversation. I don't know. I don't remember if it was on the panel or not, but you had talked about how you at one point were into like pseudo-archaeology and pseudo-history and it, as was I, right? So when I was a kid, my mom bought me this book called The uh, Book of the Unknown, And it talked about Bigfoot and, the you know, Chinese wild man and the Tunguska blast. And it just sort of piqued my interest and it sound, and plus, you know, I was like nine, right. And reading this book. And then as I got older, you start listening to, uh, you know, coast to coast with Art Bell. And, you know, I grew up watching the TV show, uh, uh, in search of hosted by William Shatner, uh, not William Shatner. I was doing
1: the new one. It was uh, Leonard Nimoy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was uh, hosted by Leonard Nimoy and just, you know, infatuated with like, wow, there, there maybe there is something out there. Cause it's enticing, right? Yeah. Like there's this hidden knowledge that's out there that, that people are giving us little tidbits, giving us access to something. And I think that's very appealing to people in the conspiracy community is they feel like I have access to this this hidden knowledge. Anyway, I was going on a rant. So what was your um, experience with pseudo-archaeology? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, was 18 years old. I had graduated
1: high school and was going off to college. And I picked up uh, Graham Hancock's book, Fingerprints of the Gods, when it was new in the bookstores. And I loved it. You know, it was fascinating. It was intriguing, and I was—I bought it, hook line and sinker. Uh, and you know, there was a few pages here and there. I think he says that Teotihuacan is this like this earthquake sensing machine, which uh, seemed a little strange at the time. Uh, but it put a fire under myself to learn more about archaeology and the ancient world. And you know, I think one of the most important things to me about doing a session like this, I gradually realized that. Hancock's ideas were wrong and you know some of it was the data uh, because Hancock cherry picks as all these guys do and they take it out of context and they misrepresent it uh, and they twist the facts and so I started to piece together you know the larger scope of knowledge for a while but the really big thing is that Hancock also uh, to this day goes on and on and on about how archaeologists are these tremendous jerks yeah total assholes (laughs) who are hiding the truth from you and that, you know, I think more than anything, what changed my mind is I started to meet archaeologists and realize the, the passion that they have, the interest that they have. Like, good God, if we find something... We desperately want to tell you about it. The idea that archaeologists have to maintain the status quo to keep their jobs is the biggest joke on the planet. The best thing that could happen to my career is to find something new and unexpected and for me to be able to publish that and make
0: hay out of it. Yeah, and uh, he harps on that endlessly. You know, uh, and uh, especially Clovis first, right? Yeah. So he acts like if Clovis first is still a thing, <laughs> when it hasn't been in like been. thirty years, when forty when I years. Was
1: an undergrad, my professor, which was back in the nineties, was my, my professors were telling me that Clovis first was not a thing anymore.
0: Yeah, I learned the same thing, and. Unless you're taking in a, a an anthropology class or an archaeology class, you're not gonna hear that. And all you're gonna hear is like this mainstream bullshit on Joe Rogan or, or Graham Hancock or whatever what a, repeating this claim. I also love how he Hancock seems it's like almost like he pretends he's
1: the one who undid
0: Clovis first.
1: Yeah. It, it yeah. Was the <laughs> academic archaeologists who realize that Clovis first was wrong. Yeah,
0: who he shits on endlessly and pretends like we don't, you know look for new information or, or new data. Uh, one of my favorite things is somebody asked me once, well, they didn't ask me, they accused me of being part of this network of people that are, uh, hiding the fact that giants exist because my field school was in Chaco and somebody found out about it at a party and they were like, well, would you find out about the giants? And I was like, the what? (laughs) And, uh, so he started, you know, arguing with me. Well, you guys, you're hiding the fact that there's giants. And I'm like, look, man, if I found a fucking giant, everybody in the world would know about it. I would become the world's f- foremost expert on giants. I'd get my Nobel Prize. I would have speaking engagements and movie deals. Like my life would be set if I proved the existence of giants. So the idea that we're going to find something that's earth shattering and changes the perception of of our understanding of the world, you know, how world history unraveled is completely wrong, you know, and uh, like we would hide that. We would we would keep it a secret because we're no. we're desperately trying to keep this stuff from the public. It's it's nonsense. It's pure bullshit. So much of my dissertation work was uh, focused
1: on trying to push back against Olmec as mother culture, and there's this long-standing argument that the Olmec are quote unquote the first civilization of Mesoamerica. Mm-hmm. Yeah and they are early and they are cool and they do some amazing sculpture but there are so many contemporary archaeological sites throughout Mesoamerica same time period it's, uh, with sites of similar size and complexity they just don't have the cool art uh, and this idea of and but but Olmec mother culture is this old, entrenched academic idea. And, you know, I would do anything to turn that over and fight back against it. And that, there's plenty of people who realize that it's problematic, but there's still people who argue that Olmec is a mother
0: culture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, fortunately, in, in my uh, intro to archaeology class uh, that I took at UNM, it was pointed out to us that it was not a mother culture. The uh, The professor, she framed it as like, well we could think of them as sister cultures because they were coming about like at the same time borrowing from each other and, you know, probably fighting each other and, and, you know, just trying to coexist on this piece of land. But, um, yeah, yeah. This idea that Olmec's mother called, you still hear it. And yeah. it's repeated in the popular media, in the popular press, uh, as well as in, you know, academia, although not as much in academia, one of my favorite, uh, moments from the panel was uh, Ken Fetter when he was signing off and he said uh, you know if you don't have the time to teach pseudo archaeology in your class to talk about pseudo archaeology in your class you, you, need to, you need to make the fucking time is exactly what he said how do you uh, how does that jive with you? 100% I,
1: uh, my, your students have heard about this if you're teaching people the young people the grown ups the adults in your life have heard about these things And we have to talk about them. Uh, There's no universal solution to, quote-unquote, fixing this problem. Misinformation, false information, conspiracy theory is rampant in so many fields. But ignoring it is not going to fix the problem. And we have to find ways to productively engage on these topics. Uh, Because if we just pretend it's not happening,
0: it's just going to keep flourishing. So what advice would you have for uh, somebody out there who's ar- either an archaeologist or interested in becoming an archaeologist? How do they navigate that minefield of uh, what's, what's authentic and what isn't? You know, How do they know the, the good from bad?
1: That is hard, and, it, and it's something that I push on my students all the time. You have to critically examine everything you read. Who wrote it? Who published it? Why are they publishing it? There's an easy answer out there of like, oh, you should only read stuff from university presses or academic sources. Uh, but that's not always true. There are plenty of academic things out there. We were talking about the salutrian hypothesis the mm-hmm. other day, yeah. which is the short story. It's misinformation. It's been de- debunked, disproved, but it came from academic sources. You have to, in every facet of your life, this is, I'm, I'm just going to be really sorry here and say that there's no easy answer whether it comes to archaeology, pseudo-archaeology, political conspiracy theories, etc. At every moment in your life, you have to critically examine the information as it's coming in and consider who wrote it, who published it, and why. And you have to be ever vigilant to fight off misinformation. And you know what? It's okay if you fall down a rabbit hole sometimes because even after I got deep into this stuff, I was talking with folks the other day. uh, I read, I was in grad school, already, you know turned away from pseudo-archaeology, and I started to read uh, a book by a guy named Gavin Menzies, uh, all about how these Chinese sailors had mapped Australia and the Americas before any Europeans had, and I was hook, line, and sinker in that book, too, even when I should have known better, until he got to a point where he started talking about the Maya, and I realized he had no clue what he was talking about, because he got to my specialty, You have to forgive yourself if you fall down a rabbit hole and learn to recognize and correct something. It's so hard. Once we think we know something, it's so hard to let go and change our minds. But you have to be willing to do that, too.
0: Oh, absolutely. I agree 100%. And that's the strength of science, right? Good science is that we uh, change uh, our perceptions as new and better data become available. And that should guide every part of our lives. Um, Absolutely. Just don't get stuck with one way of thinking. Well, Dr. Anderson, it's been nice talking to you. Uh, Glad to have you on the show. Hopefully we'll have you back on because I want to talk about those little dinosaur figurines.
1: Yes, I want to come back for a combo of figurines. Like, we'll break this
0: down. (laughs) Nice. Well, uh, have a good rest of your uh, SAAs and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tales from Atlantis, a project of the Chimali Institute of Mesoamerican Arts. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do this by visiting talesfromastlantis.com and clicking support the podcast. Your continued support will help keep the podcast ad-free and independent. Until next time, timo itase.